Throughout this podcast, I will be interviewing people across different fields and learning about the difficult discussions that they have within their careers, along with the tools that they use to manage those conversations. The end goal is to deduct common themes and skills among different individuals that can be applied to the complex conversations one has on a daily basis. Some of these conversations can be so difficult, can be so emotionally fraught that you've done a good job if you haven't made the situation worse. My name is Annabelle Walter, and this is Difficult Discussions, a podcast dedicated to finding a method to navigating difficult conversations. My name is John Banja, B-A-N-J-A. I have been a professor at uh, Emory University for going on 40 years uh, now. Uh, I've done uh, a, a bunch of things. Uh, my career has uh, began uh, as a director of continuing medical education, although I'm not a clinician myself, I have a PhD in philosophy. Um, I vectored into uh, medical ethics uh, in around 1980 uh, and uh, have uh, remained there just about all of my career. But uh, the first oh, 17 years or so uh, at Emory, I, I came to Emory in 1983. Uh, I spent in the Department of Rehab Medicine um, uh, and I was, like I say, coordinating uh, continuing education courses, but I, I was also uh, very interested in ethical issues that occur in rehabilitation, medicine, and disability. So the patient populations that we're talking about there uh, are persons who have sustained serious brain injuries, oftentimes from motor vehicle accidents, violence, uh, strokes, uh, spinal cord uh, injury, uh, traumatic amputations, uh, those kinds of things. And uh, in, during the 1980s, 1990s, I uh, wrote uh, and lectured on uh, the ethical dimensions of neurological injury, serious neurological injury. And then I began working part-time with our Center for Ethics in the 1990s. And in 2000, I... Uh, transferred from the rehab department to the Center for Ethics, and I have been there uh, ever since. So uh, over the last 20 years, I've kind of uh, focused on two areas. Uh, the first one uh, being medical errors. I got interested in medical errors around 2000 and uh, have, uh, uh, have retained an interest in, in medical errors for the last 20 years. But about five years ago, when I started reading about artificial intelligence models, which are essentially computer software, uh, a lot of the hype that surrounded them uh, was focused on the idea that, hey, these models are going to reduce medical errors. They're going to reduce the frequency and the severity of medical errors. They're going to complement uh, physicians. And it's going to be just a, a real win-win situation for, uh, for patients. Patients will be the beneficiaries of a diminished or reduced uh, volume of, uh, of errors. So I, I got interested in that. It was kind of a natural uh, a segue from uh, medical errors to studying artificial intelligence. So that's what I've been doing uh, the, last, uh, the last five years. What type of difficult discussions do you typically find yourself navigating within your work or that you talk about within your work? Yeah. So fortunately, I guess, because I'm not a clinician, 
I don't have too many difficult conversations that I have to personally uh, navigate. I suppose the, 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 the most common ones that I have to navigate are disgruntled students uh, who come in and they're upset about the grade that I gave them. Uh, and, you know, they're telling me that they have to get into medical school. They just absolutely have to get into medical school. And consequently, I have to give them an A. They have to get an A uh, and uh, that kind of thing. That's, that's a, a, a relatively... Uh, common one. But, but fortunately, you know, when you work in a humanities kind of area like, uh, like bioethics or uh, uh, an applied area of ethics like bioethics, what you're mostly doing is you're mostly studying the material. You're mostly uh, thinking about these cases, these difficult cases. And so your, your mindset is kind of analytical and critical. Uh, and uh, and that's those that's the kind of skill set that you hone. I can tell you though, because I've been lecturing and writing on difficult communications for 25 years, the common ones that appear uh, in healthcare uh, are when the uh, the doctor uh, has to communicate a uh, nasty difficult, anguishing diagnosis, like a, a nasty malignancy, a nasty cancer diagnosis, uh, an, an, an unanticipated death disclosure. You go to that family in the waiting room, they have no idea their loved one has died and you have to tell them that. Um, and uh, what got me interested uh, also in medical errors is when you think about it, uh, my interest in empathic communications predated my uh, my interest in medical errors. But how I got uh, interested in medical errors was listening to the one of the first presentations I ever heard about medical errors. And I'm sitting there in the audience after just having given my talk on empathic communications. And this guy is talking about the medical errors that happen in healthcare. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, holy smokes, if you are the physician and you committed, or nurse, and you committed this medical error and it caused harm to the patient, uh, boy, how do you communicate that one? Because the, you owe the patient, you owe the family the truth as to what happened. You shouldn't leave them guessing as to why this nasty thing occurred. But man alive, uh, communicating that in, in, in a way where you don't sound terribly defensive, like I'm more, I'm more worried about my legal liability than I am about you learning what happened and being compassionate toward you. Uh, that's, that's a real, real challenge. So um, uh, yeah, so that's, that's kind of summed up uh, the last 40 years of my life. So when discussing this, you know, quote unquote, impossible patient, you talk about how people see the world through their own anxieties and their own concerns. And I was, uh, and you sort of talk about that in relation to the patient. And I was wondering how you believe your or someone else's identity and belief shapes the way that they approach a conversation, whether it is with a patient or a family member and perhaps the biases and assumptions uh, or medical errors that can be made as a cause of that. Right, so a big mistake that health professionals make in navigating a difficult conversation is to think that it is primarily about facts. Namely that what I need to do is communicate to the patient, their diagnosis, the lab findings, the prognosis, the alternatives, the risks, the all that kind of stuff. Uh, when, as a matter of fact, in difficult, yeah, uh, uh, let me go back. Usually, in most healthcare communications, 
yes, that is what you should do. And that is probably what the patient is interested uh, in learning. Yeah, tell me about this disease process that's going on in me, what kind of medicines I need to take, how the treatment is going to go, what I can expect, all that kind of stuff. Yes. So, I mean, most of the time, that is what the patient is concerned about, facts, information. But when you have a difficult communication, uh, and, and by the way, I left uh, one out when I told you about, oh, difficult communications include death disclosures and medical errors. Difficult communications also include when you're sitting across the desk or you're sitting in an examination room with a very angry, nasty, irascible, profane patient who obviously does not like you, who's asking you a bunch of very uncomfortable questions. You don't want to be in that examining room with that individual because you are developing a distinct dislike of this person. That's a difficult communication. That's a real tough one. And when you use the word impossible patient, that's you know, what went through my mind. And, uh, and, and healthcare professionals are absolutely going to meet up with those people. I mean, uh, you know, every day you're going to have persons coming into your office uh, and they're going to be challenging. And by the way, they might not necessarily be very, you know, the angry, rude kind of individual. Uh, they might be uh, very depressed. They might be very, very sad. They might be uncommunicative. Sometimes having a conversation with the person who's just not responding to you, just not saying anything can be very, very uh, challenging. So what in these difficult communications, what is key, what is absolutely key is not so much the information side of the communication. It's regulating the emotional side of the communication. It's regulating your own emotion. And it's also getting a bead on how this patient is feeling and how his or her feelings are affecting how he or she is understanding what you're telling them and what lies in front of him. That's, that's the thing. And you don't learn this, by the way, over a weekend. You don't learn it studying a book. You learn it uh, largely, yes, by studying empathic theory but you also learn it by doing it. Unfortunately, you learn it by making mistakes and, uh, and seeing, gosh, this, this conversation did not go very well. What errors did I make? Uh, how, how could it have gone better? When the patient asked me this, what should I have said, you know, instead of what I did say? So. So when communicating with patients, it's the ability to not only prioritize like sharing the information needed in terms of their diagnosis, but also being able to empathize with them and, and be emotionally aware of where they are with the information being given. That's right. So, uh, so again, you know, if, if, if you came to a physician with a sore throat or something like that, and that, and that physician examined you and said, well, a Annabelle, actually, there's a lot of bacterial infection going around right now. And so what I'm going to do is prescribe an antibiotic for you. I mean, that's not a, a very emotionally fraught conversation, even though one, I think one of the worst things in the world is a sore throat, you know, uh, but uh, uh, you know, if, if, if I am uh, going to deliver a very weighty piece of information, like uh, a patient has a serious cardiorespiratory or neurological disease, um, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to concentrate on delivering it in bits and pieces 
So I'm going to say something like, well, Mr. Jones, uh, your lab results have come back and they indicate that you do have a serious condition uh, going on with you. And uh, the name of the condition is blah, blah, blah. And that's what we have to attend to and have to treat. And then I'm gonna stop talking. And I will tell you that in difficult conversations, they're not about you. They are about this other person. And so what you want to do is you want to feed this person bits and pieces. This is, I'm talking about medicine now, clinical context. You want to feed that person bits and pieces of information because not only do you want to give that person time to understand and think about what you're saying, but you also want to see how he or she is receiving the information so if I tell a patient, you know, Mrs. Jones, the biopsy has come back and it does indicate that you have breast cancer, you have an, a malignancy in your breast and we have to attend to it. I mean, I've just delivered a very, very, uh, it, uh, like, like a bomb, you know, has, has, has gone off and I'm going to stop and I'm going to give her time to digest that information so that if she just stares at me, if she just says, oh, you're telling me I have, I have cancer. I'm going to say, yes, that's, that's right. It's, it is hard for me to tell you that. And I imagine it's, it's just, terribly, terribly distressing for you to hear. Now, here comes an interesting part. Uh, uh, I, I say, I, I, I can only imagine how difficult this is for you to hear. She might say, contrary to my expectation, she might say, well, yes, it's horrible for me to hear, but as a matter of fact, my mother had, can had breast cancer, my grandmother had breast cancer. So, you know, even though I, 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 I hate what you're saying to me right now, it's not totally unexpected. In other words, she might say something to me totally different from what I'm expecting her to say. On the other hand, she might start weeping. And, and, and see, that is the thing. You have to try to remove your own feelings from the situation and concentrate and pay attention so that if she starts weeping, I'm going to reach for the box of Kleenex. I'm going to hand her the box of Kleenex and I'm going to stay quiet until she says something. And I will tell you, Annabelle, that for a lot of people, that's very hard to do. For a lot of healthcare professionals, keeping quiet, remaining silent, which is a very respectful thing to do when you have delivered very nasty news to a patient, but it's very hard for them to do because uh, you know, just, just listening to someone, especially when you're starting to feel anxious, you wanna start talking yourself to relieve this anxiety that you're starting to feel. You want to regain control of the situation. And that's it's difficult in, in difficult conversations because, you know, by my taking my cues from the patient, the patient's controlling the conversation, not me. And for a lot of healthcare professionals, that's hard. That's difficult because they feel a need to stay in control. Yeah, it's sort of that active listening and, and being there for the patient. That's right. Putting yourself aside. That sort of goes into my next question. Um, 
I also read uh, your PowerPoint and how it talked about emotional contagion, how people in pain often uh, project those negative emotions right. onto those around them. Um, but you also talk about the importance of empathy for the healthcare providers. So how do you think individuals and healthcare professionals especially can balance maintaining empathy while also sort of prioritizing their mental health and, and their beliefs? That's a wonderful question. Uh, a wonderful question because you're right. When that patient is depressed or angry, he or she is, is psychologists use the term projection. He or she is projecting those emotions onto you and you will feel them. You will feel those, uh, those emotions. Now, I think that people who are really good uh, with empathy, they learn how to deal with those projections, largely because they're not focused on themselves. They're not focused on how miserable I'm feeling or how anxious I'm feeling right now. I just want to get out of this room and I want somebody else to be talking to this, to this patient. They're focused on that patient. Nevertheless, though, it can be very, very draining work uh, to I mean, be a psychiatrist, for example, and to listen to human suffering all day long. Uh, so uh, what uh, the way uh, professionals will deal with this uh, is they uh, will figure out ways to recharge their empathy batteries. I mean, when that voltage is just depleted from your battery, you got to figure out a way to recharge it. So they have hobbies, uh, they perhaps have spiritual pursuits, um, they will perhaps uh, discuss uh, their own challenges, and everybody has challenges in life, everyone experiences lumps and bumps, and frankly, and let's be honest about it, tragedies. Uh, everyone experiences multiple tragedies over the, the course of their journey through life. So you have friends that you talk to and just sharing, you know, these, these, these issues. If you're a psychologist, very often the psychologist will make an appointment with another psychologist and, uh, you know, discuss the challenges that they have and how they can navigate these kinds of, uh, of challenges. But it's a wonderful question because you're right. Empathic work can be emotionally, psychologically exhausting. And then sort of branching out beyond healthcare, um, I hear from a lot of people, again, that empathy is one of the most important things when going into a conversation, keeping an open mind and not going in with the I'm right mentality. Let me Bingo. prove to you that I'm right. Um, but I think one difficult part about a difficult conversation is that you want to empathize with the other side, but when you're dealing with an issue that maybe is so personal for you, how, you know, how do you listen to the other side while still, again, prioritizing, you know, your own mental health and your own well-being? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, it, it's not necessary to be empathic all the time. Uh, and actually, uh, Parents, it's just occurring to me right now, I've got two sons and six grandchildren. Parents are oftentimes terrible at empathy. They're terrible at empathy because they're concerned about your welfare. You know, they're concerned about the welfare of their children. And as soon as their child starts talking about something challenging that happened in school, this or that, or this or that, what's the first reaction of the parent? I want to give you advice, 
right? I want to relieve this situation. Here's what you need to do uh, because I see you're suffering and that just pains me and yeah, that, 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 that. Well, you know, uh, the first thing that that parent should be doing is listening to what the kid is having to say, right? And, and also, which is, and this is very difficult for parents, to try to imagine what their child's world is like what the anxieties are, what their worries are, what their aspirations, what their hopes are. And a lot of times parents, they just, they just want to listen to that. You know, they just want to jump right over into the advice and this is what you should do. Why? Because this will solve the problem and, and you won't be unhappy anymore and that makes it easier on me. You see, that's the thing. We want to jump to the solution of the problem without having to go through the process that got us there in the, uh, you know, in the, in the first place. But, you know, I mean, giving advice is, is, is fine. That's, that's absolutely fine if that's what the individual wants. Uh, but, you know, in the empathic communication, what you're trying to do first is identify, well, what, what is this person asking me to do? What is this conversation about? What, what, what is this person? And if you don't know, that's why the empathic kinds of prompts are so important. So tell me more about this. So uh, uh, Mrs. Jones, when you uh, begin talking about your daughter, I see that you kind of tear up. Uh, so there's, there's something there I think that we need to talk about. So, you know, tell me more of, uh, uh, about this. So just to recap what you've said, you know, the importance of empathy and active listening and seeking to understand so that you don't, you know, skip the process and go straight to right. based discussions. Um, and then how do you suggest people keep these discussions productive and polite? Well, you, you asked about a productive conversation, and that begs the question of, well, what is a productive conversation? Sometimes I tell healthcare professionals, because I give lots of talks on empathic communications, sometimes I tell healthcare professionals, you know, some of these conversations can be so difficult, can be so emotionally fraught that you've done a good job if you haven't made the situation worse. If, if, the, if, if, you know, if the situation just stayed the same, sometimes that's the best you can do in certain of these, uh, you know, of, these, of these conversations. But typically what I wanna do in a conversation is I will want that person somehow feeling, well, indeed not worse. So let's, I mean, let's just take an example. If I was an oncologist and I was delivering a cancer, let's say a breast cancer diagnosis to a patient, you know, I would want that patient coming out of that conversation to feel somewhat optimistic about their chances, at least positive in thinking that I am going to support this patient in, in her feeling that there is a therapeutic alliance between me and this physician. This physician, I think, is going to listen to me. He is going to support me. He's going to be with me through this journey and will give me strength and help me get through it. So that's that I, I would think that would be a productive co uh, conversation in, in oncology. Yeah. Um, and you said sometimes the best you can do is you leave a situation, you feel like you haven't made it worse. Um, but how do you think individuals and healthcare professionals can 
know when it is best to walk away from a conversation. Uh, I, I will tell you this. Uh, I, I would not focus just on a single conversation, as in, boy, that last conversation I had with Mrs. Jones went badly. So I think I would like another doctor to take care of her. Uh, it's when 10 conversations with Mrs. Jones go badly and the treatment is going nowhere. So, you know, it's in a situation like that, or if after two or three or four visits with Mrs. Jones, you simply don't think, and this is where the humility comes into the equation. You simply don't think that you can help her in a way that you can. So this really requires a very accurate bead on myself. It's not Mrs. Jones' fault. Somehow this relationship that I'm having with her, it's just not a therapeutic relationship. It's not going the way we want it to go. And, you know, it's at, it's at that moment when, again, you know, humility, I think is important here. You say to yourself, we're not clicking this, this, I'm not helping her. And therefore I, I want to recommend that she sees another another physician. And by the way, if that's the case, then I would uh, uh, offer to her, I think I can make an appointment for you to see Dr. Jones or Dr. Dr. Smith. And, and I would frankly tell her, you know, I, I just don't think that our relationship uh, here is, is really a therapeutic one. I don't think that I am helping you. And I would say it compassionately, not like I'm going to abandon her, like, boy, oh boy, am I happy to get rid of you, you know, but uh uh, like I say, from a therapeutic uh, context. By the way, Annabelle, it, it, it takes years to learn this stuff. You know, I mean, it takes trial and error. It takes experience. It takes making mistakes. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and even then, um, there will always be challenging cases. There will always be situations that you handle poorly or, or badly. So, uh, but, but uh, I think I think there's just no substitute for learning this stuff. You, you can't know too much about it. Uh, and it really is the, the labor, the work of a lifetime. Yeah. After multiple attempts and real tries at having a, a positive outcome, it's about respecting you know, yourself and your beliefs and respecting the patient and why they're there. And um, whether it's in a healthcare setting or not, and knowing that if, if there's no positive outcome being generated, then maybe it's not worth continuing to push that um, push that discussion amongst yeah. those two individuals. Yeah, and you know, uh, you raised a very good point of the therapy is going nowhere. So maybe I'm a physical therapist. I'm treating a patient for his or her back pain. You know, uh, it, the patient now has seen me 20 times. We've had 20 PT sessions and his back pain is no better now than when it was at session number one. So naturally the patient's upset uh, with me or the, or the, or the patient's gonna be uh, discouraged. You know, uh, uh, Mr. Banja, holy smokes, this is the 20th time my back pain hasn't gotten any better. In fact, I think it's gotten worse. Do you know what you're doing? I mean, uh, this, this, this therapy is going nowhere. And, you know, over the course of a, of, of a, of a career, you've got to learn as a physical therapist uh, you know, uh, how to, how to handle a, a conversation like that when that patient is very discouraged as blaming you for, uh, for the therapy going nowhere, you know, and boy, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, there's a real temptation to want to blame the patient. 
Well, yeah, you, you know what? It, it's, it, I'm trying to do the best job I can, Mr. Jones, but I told you it on session number one, you need to lose about 20 pounds for heaven's sakes. Have you done that? No. What do you do? You spend your night drinking Coca-Cola and eating Twinkies for heaven's sakes. Yeah, and, you know, that's that's a, a tremendous temptation there to, to want to do that. But that might be a very, uh, you might want to communicate that to the patient, but there are compassionate ways of saying that without, you know, making the patient feel badly without making him uh, feel guilty, you know, for the lack of progress. Yeah, staying level-headed and knowing that the best thing for both stakeholders is to, you know, maybe walk away and find an alternate solution. Could could be could be that. Uh, and, you know, and, and also I think in cases where the therapy is going nowhere, whether it's physical therapy, whether it's chemotherapy, whether it's a psychological uh, problem uh, and you're a psychologist or you're a psychiatrist, to frankly admit it, you know, with the, with the patient. I mean, you're, Mr. Jones, you're absolutely right. And you have a right to be frustrated. I mean, you've been here, this is the 18th visit that you've come into my physical therapy clinic for your back pain and, and you're still in pain. I, I am discouraged about it. I would imagine you're 10 times more discouraged than I am uh, about it. Um, I am willing to uh, talk to you about what options are available, but it, it's clear that I'm not helping you, and uh, um, and we need to we need to address that. You know, at, at least what that does, and what it's why it is an empathic communication is it confirms the patient's feelings, and that's what you want to do. Rather than what my dad always used to say to me, which was terrible, he always used to say, "Oh, you shouldn't feel that way." You shouldn't feel, I mean, it was very judgmental. It was very condescending, but he was a narcissist. Yeah, you know, when we talk about empathy, we talk about how important it is to be humble. People who are terrible at empathy are oftentimes narcissists. These are the people who, like I say, they think that their opinions are worth their weight in gold. They, they have a tremendous amount of trouble trying to imagine what it's like to be this other person because they're not interested in other people. They're only interested in themselves. So for those narcissists who are among your listeners, they, they need to know that uh, they're, they've got a real problem with themselves in terms if they want if they want to be empathic. They have to get over their own interest, their own self-interest, their own self-love, which in narcissists is uh, over the top. It's off the radar screen, right? Um, and that's, that sort of goes into my next question. You talk a lot about empathy and compassion. What other uh, values or, or frameworks guide your discussions with others or do you think should be prioritized in difficult conversations? Well, you mentioned listening a whole bunch of times. Uh, and let us be honest that when you listen to someone, you're not talking, you're listening. Uh, and that's, that's very important. Uh, because again, oftentimes in these in these conversations, um, you need to be you need to be sensing how the emotional atmosphere is 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 occurring. Um, so uh, and, and it feels good too by listening. What you're essentially doing is giving the other person permission to be themselves. And, and you are acknowledging that and you're permitting that and you're inviting that. And usually for the other individual, that feels good. That feels good. So uh, that's what you, you know, that's what you want to do. What you want to do is you, 
you want to try to arouse positive, uh, 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 soothing, oftentimes, not so much pleasant, but soothing feelings when you're having these difficult conversations, because oftentimes people will come to you and they're feeling emotionally distraught, shredded, unhappy, uh, anxious. And if, if somehow you can induce a kind of a tranquility or calm or soothingness, uh, you're, you're doing a good job. Daily conversation, I feel like that that same mindset applies going in from a place of wanting to engage in a productive conversation. And again, not going in guns blazing, assuming that right. you're correct and the other person is of course wrong and just trying to you know be level-headed. Right, and by the way, guns blazing, that's a great phrase because what gets in the way of, of empathy is my need to protect myself and my need to protect my sense of self, my ego, my values, my ideas, uh, what, what I understand to be true. That's what messes everything up. Because if, if you're going to be intent on defending yourself rather than listening to where this other person is coming from, you're not going to have an empathic communication. If you do defend yourself, then uh, uh, you, you need to be able to communicate that defense in a non-injurious, uh, uh, non-adversarial kind of way. You know, well, well, Mr. Jones, you're absolutely right. Uh, this is your 18th appearance here in, in the clinic for your back pain. It has not gotten better. I am terribly, terribly sorry that I haven't helped you uh, so far. Of course, though, we do continue uh, to talk about uh, the fact that you're not losing weight and that that could be helpful. I don't want to, uh, you know, pin this on you, Mr. Jones, but there are these issues, you know, that, that, that you could be doing um, that might help out. So like I say, to, 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 to not say it in some kind of accusatory uh, fashion, but a respectful fashion. Prioritizing empathy and compassion, respect, and, and also active listening in these conversations. Yeah. And what do you think are the most important things for an individual to keep in mind when facilitating a difficult conversation or for a patient who's on the receiving end of that conversation? Yeah. The most important things for them to keep in mind is it's not about me. This is all about you. Most important things to keep in mind are uh, maintain that open mindset. Ask questions. The great, the, the, the great empathy uh, uh, person is an individual who is really interested in walking in that patient's shoes, knowing how the patient's feelings are making sense out of what's going on right now. So, you know, to ask those empathic kinds of, of, of questions. So I wonder what you're thinking right now, Mr. Jones. Uh, I, I can see that this is very distressing for you. Tell me more about this. Yes, that was tough. Well, of course you got angry. Anyone would get angry in a situation like that. You know, all of these. And you know what? I, I will tell you, uh, Annabelle, that uh, it's not difficult to learn these empathic prompts. Anybody could learn them. You don't have to be a psychiatrist. You don't have to be a psychologist, uh, but it, it's a kind of a learned skill. The, the, the skills, like you said, of active listening, of empathic listening, you could do it. It'll take you months. It'll take you years. You'll still make mistakes, but you get better at it.
as you, you know, as you go on. Um, so, you know, so, so all, all of those, all of those things, like I say, you can't know enough about, about this stuff. I will tell you that when I started learning about empathy and the humility that comes along with it, it changed my life. It changed my life because I was very narcissistic, like my father, you know, and, uh, and that was part of my own, uh, self-transformation, hopefully for the better. I don't, I don't know how much I succeeded in it, but, uh, but uh, learning empathic listening could be absolutely one of the most valuable skills that you will develop in your life. You can use it all the time, all the time, uh, not in particularly emotionally fraught conversations, but you and your buddies, you and your friends, you and your supervisor at work, you and your teachers, you and your parents. I mean, it's just it's just worth its weight in gold. You talk about how you didn't sort of learn very much about that until later in your life. And I was just thinking about how it's sort of expected of you, like, I mean, I'm in high school, but it's sort of expected in high school that you will have those, um, have the ability to engage in those conversations, but it's never really spoken about very blatantly, like. They don't teach it. The teacher just says, well, you have to work on your listening skills and then doesn't tell you how to do that, you know, uh. So, uh, so, so yeah, and holy smokes, you know, what, what you uh, teenagers are dealing with now with regard to these atrocities, these massacres that are occurring at Uvalde and in Tulsa and in Buffalo and, you know, and, and all the trauma uh, that, uh, that, that, that comes with that. I mean, that's just something that uh, I, I, will, I will confess this to you. That's hard for me to imagine. Because when I was your age, I at least, thank God, we all felt very safe, very secure in our in our grade schools and in our high schools. This never, ever happened uh, when I was 15 or 20 years old. So uh, so like I say, it's 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 hard for me to imagine these 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 horrors occurring. Yeah, definitely. And I think that my generation will be even better at communicating because we've mm. had so much practice mm. early on, even though there's no, not exactly a class on how to actively listen, but we've had so much experience with it so early yeah. on in our lives that hopefully we will be better than previous generations. Yes, yeah. that, you can, that you can handle these communications in a more healthy fashion than previous generations did. Hope so. My fingers are crossed for you. If you're about to walk into a room, you know you're going to have a difficult conversation, whether it's healthcare or just at home with the family. Um, what do you tell yourself before you go into that room? I'm going to take a couple deep breaths. If, if, for example, I'm going to go in to disclose a medical error, uh, I'm going to anticipate that the individual may get very angry with me, but uh, I'm not going to be defensive. I'm going to go in with the attitude of telling the truth. Uh, I'm going to go in with an attitude of humility uh, that this person has a right to get angry and mad. And uh, if that person wants to whop me upside the head, metaphorically, not physically, uh, I'm, I'm going to be ready to take that. Uh, I'm going to try very hard not to be defensive, not to justify uh, what what happened. Um, I'm going to apologize if it, if indeed an apology is 
necessary, if it's if it's justified, if it's right. Um, I'm going to also anticipate, again, in, if I'm disclosing a medical error, I'm going to anticipate certain questions. And by the way, you don't learn this until you've done a couple of them. I'm going to anticipate that the patient or family might ask, well, so you screw this up. Uh, what are you going to do to make sure this doesn't happen to somebody else? And I'm going to have an answer uh, to that. Uh, I'm also going to say something to this person like, now, Mr. Jones, after I leave this room, you might think of questions that you would have wanted to ask me. So here's a piece of paper with my cell phone on it. I, I want you to feel free to call me anytime uh, for further conversation. Uh, and by the way, that's, that's another thing. Uh, oftentimes it, with difficult communications, the first conversation is not the last conversation. There may be multiple ones. And that's why it's so important to do the first one right. Uh, because if you upset that patient, if you're defensive, if you get that patient angrier than uh, what he or she was originally, uh, then be prepared for the rest of the conversations not to go well. But again, Annabelle, you learn all this stuff through experience. You'll learn all this stuff by making the mistakes. So you have to get ready to, uh, to, take, to take those blows and to learn from them. This is a lifelong journey. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a journey wherein if you're going to really get good at it, you're going to have to be ready to look into your own heart, to look into your own anxieties, to look into your own communicational imperfections, um, and, and, you know, to, to take a good look at your own warts, you know, uh, and, and, and to be ready to admit them, and then to try to ask yourself, well, how can I do this better? How can I, how can I be, be better? And, and ultimately to forgive yourself really for the, the mistakes that, that you have made uh, and to try to put those mistakes and those things that you don't like about yourself into a compartment uh, that you can admit and acknowledge every now and then, but that it doesn't define you. That, it, you know, that, that you're not the, this bad person because you didn't have the conversation that you wanted to have with your best friend, um, but rather that you're going to go back to it uh, and try to do better the next time.